Well, now let's do what we always do, what we do every week. We look at God's Word. If you have a Bible, open to Romans chapter 2. It won't be on the screen. We'll have the points on the screen, but you can find the text in your bulletins if you don't have a Bible with you. I'm not sure that this text, Romans 2 verses 1 through 16, has ever been preached on a church's anniversary in the history of the world. I don't know, but friends, there is much good in this text for us today as we look at the verses that Anne read for us earlier. The first thing that we have to answer is who is Paul talking to in this text? The end of chapter 1 was clearly for the Gentiles. What about here? Well, verse 1, you have no excuse, oh man. Every one of you who judges, you condemn yourself because you practice the very same things. Verse 3, do you suppose, oh man, you who judge, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, or do you presume? Who's the you? Is this a particular person? Is this a people group? In a sense, Paul is, is talking to an imaginary figure. He doesn't tell us who. If you're like me, you still find it just a little bit funny when you see people walking around and it looks like they're talking to themselves. It looks a little weird. Eventually, maybe you see the, the ear pieces in their ear and you realize they're not crazy, but they're on a phone call. It was a bit more challenging maybe a decade ago when we had those Bluetooth earpieces. You remember that? Uh, where we had these Bluetooth earpieces just in one ear. And so you might be uh, walking around and you don't see that Bluetooth earpiece and you think someone's talking to an imaginary friend or maybe they're a bit crazy. It appeared that people were talking just into the air. Well, it's a bit like Paul is talking to the air here or to an imaginary friend. But all of this, as John Stott points out, is a type of writing within the tradition of Greek called diatribe. The apostle engages this imaginary figure in a dialogue. And this figure then represents a category of people that Paul has in mind here from verses 1 through 16. It's a literary device where the writer or speaker lets us, lets us in to the audience of a private conversation. We get to listen in to what Paul says in his Bluetooth earpiece to someone else with a different belief system. The point is, Paul wants to show us that his view is the right view. So who is the you representing? It's not entirely clear, though many scholars think in chapter 1 that Paul is speaking to the Gentiles. That seems very clear. And that in chapter 2, Paul is addressing the Jews. We don't know exactly a, a specific reference to the Jews we find not until verse 17, next week's passage. But the emphasis on these verses, it seems a bit more broad. However, I think there's still good reason to think that what's in Paul's mind here is the Jew in this chapter that Paul is writing of the Jews. In, in Romans 1, we saw that the Gentiles, they suppressed the truth. They suppressed the truth that God had revealed to them and that they were without excuse. Now in Romans 2, we see that this group did the same thing. They had more specific truth revealed to them, but the result was the same. They reject God and they had no excuse. This, this sounds like the Jews. They could have thought, well, we're God's chosen people. We're the special people of God. Surely we can live 
as we like, and God will still bless us. God will overlook or cover our sins. Well, while we may have the Jews in view here, I think both chapters 1 and chapters 2 are for all of us. You might find yourself fitting in one category or the other. Chapter 1, Paul's writing to the irreligious person, but in chapter 2 of Romans, or chapter 2 of Romans always comes after chapter 1 of Romans, we see the irreligious person in chapter 1, but we see the religious person in chapter 2. Author Tim Keller says Paul is going to drop a bucket of ice-cold water on the religious person. Not a bucket of, of mercy like I shared a few weeks ago, but a bucket of judgment because they get their share of judgment right here. We see gross immorality in chapter 1. We had our list of 21 sins and more. And now in chapter 2, we see what the title of my sermon suggests, self-righteousness. You could probably boil down the point of these verses to that simple compound word, self-righteousness. Paul turns the tables. God's perfect judgment comes on all sinners, the irreligious and the religious alike. We'll see three sections in our text. Therefore, three points or three challenges, three exhortations to us as a church on our 13th anniversary. The first of which is be not hypocrites, but honorable. Be not hypocrites, but be honorable. We see this in verses 1 through 4. This, there's a disease that each of us has. It's the disease of being able to be highly critical of everyone except ourselves. We judge others hastily and harshly, and yet we're gracious towards ourselves. But here's the truth. No one ever really lives up to their own standards. Think about it. And it's never just about the sin of our hands. It's about the sin of our hearts. The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, it's not just murder, it's anger. It's not just adultery, it's lustful thoughts. We make excuses for our sin. We are too tired. We had a bad day at work or a bad day at school. Things at home are challenging. I, I didn't know that was sin. I was, I was sick. What I did, well, it's, it's not as bad as that other person over there. Well, Tim Keller says, condemning others while excusing ourselves is what allows us to hang on to both our self-righteousness and our sin. We can feel good about ourselves while indulging in what makes us feel good. All the while, Paul says, you are condemning yourself. We're all hypocrites. None of us has an excuse. We pass judgment, but do the same things. In the end, we actually judge ourselves. Keller continues and writes, in other words, on the final day of God's judgment, when I stand before him, the counsel for the prosecution will be me. God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God is scrupulously fair in his judgment, and he'll use our own standards, the judgments we made with our own mouths, as the standards by which we are judged, as Jesus warned as well in those first five verses of, of chapter 7 of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, verse 1 of our passage, we have no excuse. Those who judge 
Have no excuse because in judging, you condemn yourself because you have done the same. Keller points to Francis Schaeffer, a great theologian in the 20th century who, who calls this the invisible tape recorder. Now, I realize many of you have no idea what a tape recorder is. And I'm not going to spend time describing this ancient device from before your time. For us today, I'll, I'll use smartphones. Uh, that's what we would use today to record something. Schaefer says, here's what's going to happen. And I've, I've, I've modernized this illustration to fit 2023. Imagine you have your phone with you 24 hours a day. And some of you, that's not too hard to imagine, is it? You, you're attached to your hip. Your phone is attached to your hip. But I imagine if it was recording. Just imagine for a moment if your phone there in your hip was recording all day long, recording everything that you said. Now, we've all had those crazy moments, right? Well, somehow, I don't know how it happens, but miraculously in your pocket, your WhatsApp turns on and miraculously it gets to someone and it starts recording a voice note. Has this ever happened to you? Or maybe it's happened to someone and they've sent you one of these crazy notes. It's pretty embarrassing. It's pretty crazy when that happens. Even if nothing crazy is said, if it's just static, can you hear a few things? It's, it's embarrassing. Uh, it's odd. But imagine if you were saying something crazy in that moment and it's being recorded and if it's sent to that person. It is crazy. It's just that because we all say crazy things sometimes. Everyone's phone, if recording in that way, everyone's phone, if in their pocket there was recording 24 hours a day, would reveal a lot. Makes us shudder just to, just to think about that. What would it reveal? Maybe critique, judgment, gossip. And what Schaefer is saying is that on that last day, God, the righteous judge, will simply take that smartphone out of your pocket. This is what he's saying. Paul is saying here that he'll take that phone out of the pocket and say, I'm a fair and righteous judge. I'll just play your phone recorder and I'll judge you on the basis of your judgment of others. How does that sound? That's what Paul is saying here. Verse three, he's, be careful. Be careful, don't assume otherwise. Verse three, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Oh, church, we are all guilty. None of us are off the, the hook here. No one can escape God's judgment. You judge, but you're no better. You judge, but you also do. Now it's true, Israel was special chosen people of God, but what should this favor have led to? Repentance, love, kindness, grace, tenderness, acceptance. It appears they were sinning themselves. Verse four, they were presuming on God's kindness. No, God is kind. God is incredibly patient. We see that here. But they were presuming on it. We're a special people. We have special privileges. We're the chosen people of God. God really wouldn't condemn us. But Paul is saying God's kindness, God's forbearance, God's slowness, God's patience isn't an approval of 
their actions. God's slowness to judge, his kindness isn't approval. It's meant to soften their hearts and to bring them and to bring us to repentance. Consider the parable of the prodigal son, also called the parable of the lost sons. If you're new to church, it's a story of a son who, who leaves home, takes his inheritance, goes, and he squanders it on, on a lavish and sinful lifestyle, loses everything. He's lost. But so is his elder brother, the one who stays home, the one who obeys his father's orders, the one who, who, who always does what looks right. Well, if chapter one was the younger brother, the irreligious one, well, chapter two is the older brother, the elder brother, the one who looks good on the outside, the religious one. He, but he thinks he can save himself by his goodness. What's his response when the younger brother comes back? It's not to rejoice like the father, but it's to condemn, it's to judge. It's to complain. It's to slander. It's to be unforgiving, cold, judgmental. He was just as lost. The younger brother, the older brother. Romans 1, Romans 2. Church, we're good at spotting the sin in others. Sin spotters. All of us are quality sin detectives. Quickly finding it all around us and yet blind when looking at our own lives. Even though every day we look at ourselves in the mirror. We see our faces every day. Somehow though it's challenging for us to see our hearts. Experts in our evaluation of others. Failures at personal assessments. It can be so sinister that we can actually judge someone else's slander. Now think about this. We can judge someone else's slander while at the same time slandering that same person. We see what they're doing, but we don't see what we're doing. It's like having perfect 20-20 vision for another sin, but being completely blind to your own. Now we can't plead ignorance here. We can't say, God, we didn't know. Why can't we? Well, because friends, we prove it by our actions. We do the very same things. And so Redeemer Church, as we enter into our 14th year, let's not make assumptions. Let's guard our hearts. Let's be slow to judge and let's be quick to repent. Let's be slow to judge and let's be quick to look at the specks. Look at the specks in our own eyes, to use Jesus' language. Would we be a speck-destroying people before we go out pointing out the logs in others' eyes? The church is filled with hypocrites. I've said it already. The church is filled with hypocrites. Have you ever heard that critique from someone outside the church? I've heard that critique, and when I hear it, I say, yes. I say, you're right. Church is not filled with saints. The church is filled with sinners saved by grace. Well, we're called saints, but only because of Jesus' work, not because of our work. No, we are hypocrites. The church is full of hypocrisy. You and I both, we need help. We need help first to be saved, and then we'd help, we need help daily so that, that we would walk by faith. Let's be a humble and teachable people. Consider our own, your own heart. Consider your own motives. At the end of each day, do like Jonathan Edwards did and resolve to take stock of your own life and to see if there are any areas from that day that you need to repent of before you go to sleep that night. Let's be slow to speak. 
Let's be slow to speak about others, quick to confess our own sin. Let's invite others to examine our lives. We talked a bit about discipleship in our first Sunday uh, gathering at 9 a.m. We had a couple of discipleship uh, testimonies. Bring people into your life who are asking you difficult questions. Open up about your life. Share what's been hard for you. Talk about your sin. When we bring sin into the light, that's the only way to crush our sin. Sin thrives in the darkness of our hearts. Sin thrives in silence and in darkness. Oh, friend, if you're struggling in some area of sin, bring it to light. Let's kill it. Let's help each other. Let's bear each other's burdens of sin and let's, let's be sin crushers together. Let's realize as a church that we are in constant need of God's grace. The Jews and all of us must not think we can continue in sin because we're in relationship with God. No, we must grow in our holiness. In our following verses, Paul takes a step even further. And he says, in a way, the Jews are in no better place than the Gentiles are before God. We see that, we'll see, Paul will say there's some advantages to being a Jew. We see that coming up. But in a way here, uh, there's really a sinking ship and it's got the religious and the irreligious both on it. Well, the second point, second section, second exhortation to you today, be not disobedient, but dedicated. Verses 5 through 11, God judges with impartiality, both the Jews and the Gentiles. Verse 5, your hard and impenitent heart is storing up wrath. Our ears should perk up at this. Instead of storing up treasure, Paul says the religious are storing up wrath from themselves. Again, these religious people, they're, they're not doing religious things for God. Uh, they're not being holy for, for God. They merely look good on the outside, going through the motions where there's wickedness in the inside, both the irreligious and religious. That's what Paul says here. Instead of storing up treasure, Wrath is being stored. Verse 6, the righteous judgment will come. Each one will receive according to his works. The late R.C. Sproul called this verse one of the scariest verses in the Bible. It's a banking illustration. We build up wealth. We put a portion of that wealth maybe in a bank account. And over time, that bank account grows and turns into a treasure. In the same way, Paul is saying here, each time we sin, we are storing up something. We are storing up wrath to be revealed on the day of wrath. Sproul writes, every day that we sin without repenting, we're depositing future wrath into the account of God's judgment. Verse 7, some who are patient and do good for glory, honor, and immorality, eternal life. Those who persevere in doing good. Pastor Alvin gave us that charge earlier, to persevere as believers. Verse 8, those who are self-seeking, those who don't obey, wrath and fury awaits. Let me just pause for a moment. This, this, is, a, this is a weighty portion of Scripture. Do you see how God is not indifferent to our sin? Do you see how our sin is no small matter? Our sin matters. Our sin stores up wrath. Our sin is against the God of the universe. 
We may think, well, God will forgive me. It's not such a big deal. But friend, it's huge. Your greed, your cheating, your sexual sin, your slander, your deceitfulness, your envy, your pride, all of it is a deposit, a bucket of God's wrath. Verse 9, tribulation, distress come for all who do evil. Here's the caveat. It's not just judgment for the Gentiles, and it's not just judgment for the Jews, the Jew first and also the Greek. It's for everyone who does good. They'll get glory and honor and peace. Verse 10, Paul's saying there's only two ways to live. There's no in-between. There's no middle way. There's no third way. There's no middle ground. There's no compromise. Two ways to live for everyone. Verse 11, God shows that there is no partiality. We may not see perfect justice on earth, but Paul writes, justice will come. Not from us, but later in Romans, Paul writes, vengeance is his. Vengeance is God's. Justice is God's alone. His prerogative, his, his responsibility alone. Only he can be the judge. Paul's not saying anything different here about salvation. We know that the book of Romans, it's his triumphal letter and work about justification by faith alone through grace alone. You can read it all throughout the pages we've been reading and all throughout Romans. That's not what Paul is getting at here. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. The context here is different. Yes, we're saved by grace, but our rewards in heaven will be distributed in some way according to our works. A saving faith, friends, always leads to an active faith. We see that also in James. There's no dead faith. You can't have faith and not do works. Our faith always leads us to active works. A saving faith leads to an active faith. A believer bears fruit. We're not saved by our works, but we have a dedicated, when we have a dedicated faith, we have a faith that works, that serves God. Well, three brief applications in this section. Number one, let God be the judge. Let God be the judge. He knows no need to take out vengeance. No need to take out re revenge. Christians aren't out for revenge. No need to share the sins of others unless you're getting help. Trust God. Judgment day will, will sort everything out. Number two, take sin seriously. All of them. There are no little sins in God's kingdom. A lie is a lie. Lustful thought. Adultery, unrighteous anger, murder, slander is ruining the reputation of an imaged bearer. There should be no respectable sins in our church. Let me say that again. There should be no, you got that? There will be no respectable sins in our church. No acceptable, no respectable, no allowed, no sins we just turn from. Number three, be dedicated to righteousness. We let God be the judge. We take sin seriously. We're dedicated to righteousness. We wake up in the morning and we consider what good we can do that day to those in our schools and those in our workplace, toward our neighbors, towards our friends, to those who struggle. We pray for them. For those who we struggle to like, we pray for them. Instead of talking critically about them to others, talk to God about them for their good. Let God be the judge, take sin seriously, be dedicated to righteousness. There's more I could say, but let's, let's turn our attention to the third section. Number three, be not hearers, but doers. We want to be a doing people. Verses 12 through 16, God's judgmental. 
God's judgment is impartial. Verse 12, both Jews and Gentiles, same category, sin and death. Verse 13, the Jews have the law. Verse 14, the Gentiles don't. But in the end, there's no distinction. We all have what's called the moral law. Verse 15, the law is written on our hearts. All of us, the Gentiles have the law written on their hearts. How do we see this? Well, we see this and we know this because there is an innate sense of right and wrong in each and every one of us. There's an external general Revelation. We saw that back in Romans chapter 1. Paul explains this. Psalm 19 famously talks about this. The heavens declare the glory of God. This earth shows its handiwork. Nature reveals a creator. Humans image the creator. This shows a kind of external general revelation. There's also uh, what I call an internal general revelation. Revelation. As one author puts it, it's God planting in our soul an immediate knowledge and awareness of himself. It's God doing that. It's not special revelation. That's God's word, but it's internal. As the title of one book suggests, it's eternity in our hearts. We know murder is wrong. Our conscience tells us so. Now, it can certainly be seared. There are those out there who, who are so warped, who can be blinded. But for most of us, and I hope all of us in this room, we know murder is wrong. God has put that in our hearts even before we could read that in Scripture. We're all guilty. We're all guilty, and there's coming a day when all the skeletons in our closet will be revealed. Verse 16, God will judge the secrets of men. We need rescue from this. Church, we need rescue from this. We need to be spared God's wrath. Well, the point of this lengthy section of condemnation in Romans, we started it in verse 18 of chapter 1, and we'll go all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. So we're kind of in the middle of it. A point of, of this long section of condemnation in Romans shows us that none of us could be spared on our own. The bad news comes before the good news, and there is good news. We see it in Romans 3, 21 and following. And I loved Samuel Iwachuku's first point in his sermon a couple weeks ago. Wasn't that so good from the book of Isaiah? He said, Jesus is the good news and the good in the news. Maybe that's stuck in your mind and in your heart just like it has for me. Wasn't that profound? An amazing thought. He is the good in the news. It's good news because of Jesus. And friends, all of us need Jesus. And so as we approach the communion table today, as the elements are passed and as we hold the bread and as we hold the cup in our hands, we're reminded, we're reminded that we've sinned. If you're a believer here today, we're reminded that we've sinned, but we're also reminded that there's a Savior. And that's good news. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, we urge you to believe today, to believe in Him today. There's nothing you can do we can never be good enough. One sin against the holy God taints our lives. Instead, we place our faith in Christ. And I urge you to do that today, to place your faith on Christ. Trust him to save you. It's a heart change. It, it's to admit your sin. It's to confess your sin. It's to ask God to forgive your sin. And he will. If that's you today and you don't yet know Jesus, don't let your love for sin stop you. You've seen this probably throughout your life. Your sin never satisfies. One sin just leads to another sin, leads to another sin, leads to, leads to another sin. You're walking towards a cliff. 
And on your day of death, you will fall off that cliff if you don't repent and believe. And so I urge you today, on this celebratory day, would you turn to Jesus before you fall off that cliff? God has been patient with you. Don't presume on his kindness, but turn to him in faith. Sin will always leave you feeling emptier afterwards. Don't let your pride stop you. Maybe you've been attending church for a while. Maybe you think it would be embarrassing to now claim that you've only now become a Christian. Maybe your friends have become Christians and, and you feel a bit awkward a, 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 about it. I don't, I don't know. Maybe you, you feel like you're too young and you, you have many years to make this decision. But friend, we cannot presume that you will be given tomorrow. We cannot presume that any of us will be given tomorrow. Don't let sin stop you. Don't let pride stop you. Don't let anything stop you. See, Jesus has come. He has come to us, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life and became sin for us on the cross. The wrath, that, that bucket of wrath that we had been depositing in, he took that upon himself. The biggest cup, the biggest bucket in the world, overflowing with our sin and overflowing with his wrath was poured out on Jesus every last milliliter. And so as we approach the communion table today, let me leave us with this one last thought. Bible teacher Sinclair Ferguson, as, as he considered this, this wrath of God and God's salvation, I love the way he puts it. He pointed out that during the same time frame when Jesus was being killed, Peter, one of his apostles, one of his disciples, he risked being spotted as a follower of Jesus to get close to a fire. He was warming himself up around a fire because it was so cold. But what was Jesus doing about near the same time when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, he was praying. He was also sweating. But Peter's, and then that, that same time frame, he's, he's, he's warming himself up at a fire. It, it was cold. Why was Jesus sweating? It was, it, it was, it was cold. Well, he was praying. He was asking the Father if there's any way for this cup to, to pass. He knew what it meant. It wasn't just death. We can't just say, oh, the crucifixion was horrible. It was embarrassing. He was nailed to the cross. His, his, his nerves were seared. He was in terrible pain. He was, he was, it was shame. No, it wasn't just death. We can't think of it just like that. It wasn't just physical death. It was something greater than death. It was the full cup of God's wrath for all those who were saved and would be saved poured out on him on that cross. That's what he was processing. That's what he was praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what he was sweating and eventually sweating out even blood. The wrath all stored up. Friend, if you're a believer in Christ, the wrath that you deserved was poured out on Jesus. Redeemer Church, isn't that astonishing? Isn't that astonishing that God would do that for us, that Jesus would do that for us. Every last drip, that bucket of wrath is empty. He took it all. Jesus did this for you and he did this for me. But we're not alone. 
We did a lot of stand-up sit-downs earlier. I'm not going to make you do that again. As we were standing up and sitting down and we were looking at each other from, from six continents of the world, as we were looking at each other living all throughout this country, some of us visiting, some of us just moved here, some of us been with the church for over 13 years. As we look around, we realize that we're not alone. And this is just one church. Now, Jesus did not save us for a private relationship with him. So as we take the elements today, this bread reminds us of Jesus' life and that we're bonded together as a community because of his life, because he is the bread of life, the one who could satisfy not only our deepest hunger, not only our stomachs, but our hearts. And then the cup, as we hold the cup together, as we hold the cup, it reminds us of Jesus' death. It is there that he washed his people's sin clean. Our sin is white as snow. Not just for me and not just for you, but for all of us who've believed. If you follow Jesus, you're baptized, you're a believer in Christ, we invite you to take part in communion today. If you don't yet follow Christ, we, we encourage you to let the elements pass you by. And what I want us to do before we take part is uh, to look at our church covenant. So if you have a bulletin, if you're able to do this on pages 14 and 15, you'll find our church covenant there. And in our moment of silent reflection, whether you're, you're a, a member of this church who abides as we're able to this covenant or you're visiting, you go to another church, I want all of us to, to look here. And I want to ask you a question to ask yourself as we look at our church covenant. How does the bread and the cup we're about to partake influence how I treat others in the church this week and in the days to come? Let me, let me put it this way. How does our taking community, let me say this, how about, how does us taking communion in unity with our fellow believers, all saved by Jesus, transform how we treat one another? So let's take a moment, look through our church covenant. Let it encourage us to love others in this church. Again, whether you're a member or not, let's take a moment of silent reflection, reflecting on this and how we can better love those in our congregation. Let's do that now. Once the servers and musicians come up to the front, let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you for unifying us from far off lands and a multitude of backgrounds in Christ Jesus. Would these bonds of peace be stronger than our preferences or ethnicities? Oh, Lord, let this small meal be a foretaste of our forever meal. A eternal day together that will never end.
Father, we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.